Welcome to the Supply Chain Pioneers Podcast, where we highlight industry leaders on the forefront of innovation and technology in planning, procurement, and logistics. Hosted by your supply chain pro to know, Ulf Venn. My interest in Japanese business economics and history is my segue into banking originally. I worked at three different banks, and so I always kind of had that spirit of entrepreneurship. As the technology boom was happening, it was very enticing. I'm most proud of being uh, one of the founders and having been CEO for a long time and now executive chair of Rapid Ratings. Supply Chain Pioneers is powered by Everstream Analytics. Everstream gives you the predictive insights and analytics to make your supply chain faster, smarter, safer, and leaner. Go to everstream.ai to book your demo today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Supply Chain Pioneers. And today with me, I have James Gellert, and he's the founder and executive chair of Rapid Rating. Hello, James. Hello, it's great to be with you. And as always, we start with maybe a short introduction from your side so everybody knows who you are. Sure. Well, uh, I'm uh, I'm in New York and uh, I have been a, a banker in the early part of my career turned a tech entrepreneur uh, with a through line of uh, risk and uh, financial evaluation as uh, core elements of the things that I've done. And I'm most proud of being uh, one of the founders and uh, having been CEO for a long time and now executive chair of Rapid Ratings. We're going to talk about all of that today and about risks that you might face in financial risk. So please stay tuned and really listen. For let's start, but let's start at the very beginning and even before your career really kicked off. And that is your university background. Because as I did, you studied Asian studies, you were the focus on Japanese, I studied Chinese. And then this essentially helped you find your way through a kick off your career, essentially. Maybe you talk a little bit about that, because it really is something we have in common. Yeah, well, I love that we have that in common. And uh, and, and I appreciate your asking about it. The uh, m My start in Japanese and Asian studies was probably mostly because I was terrible at Spanish and French in in grade school and when I in high school when I got to college and I had a uh, had a language requirement I had already been studying Japanese history and was really fascinated by it so I thought I would dive into Japanese as a language and ended up becoming my minor uh, and uh, and I spent my junior year in uh, Kyoto studying at Doshisha University so it's been a central part of my life and uh, ended up becoming something that I that I really took to and loved doing. Uh, and it was my segue into banking originally. So I, I sort of credit a lot of the my beginnings in work to my interest in Japanese business economics and history. And in fact, that actually led to my first work. But even though today what I'm doing is not directly tied to or, or directly in uh, Japan per se, there are a lot of the learnings and the cultural appreciation and things like that that, uh, that were really central to my career as I've grown. Yeah. 
actually pretty funny. I also started because of my interest in the modern Chinese history. Um, I read a book in school about it. And um, then I also had to pick something. And that so sounded interesting enough that I wanted to explore it more. So no, pretty cool. I, I love that. And, and of course, the, the difference the difference in our ages, Ulf, is that when uh, when I was in school, uh, Japan, the Japanese economy was the you know massive driver, and uh, and China was really far behind. And uh, it was the the students who were going for Chinese, all the students who were going for Japanese, looked and said, "Oh, that's what what a silly idea that is." <laughs> and then, of course, there was only about five five years later, and then uh, and then you know continuing where Chinese has been, you know, clearly. Uh, a very logical path and a really, really fascinating path for all of you who took it. Okay, let's move on to the next stage, which is your the start of your career in banking. So from early on, you had a focus on debt and financing, and you also have been very widely successful there, right? You quickly made it to a VP. And at one point, you then started to actually pivot your career out of this banking sector after being so successful to start... Um, as a CEO in, in different wireless and technology companies. So why did you do that switch? And why was it directly after the dot-com bubble burst? So the, the capital markets activity that I did, the, the debt financings were uh, all international. And uh, I worked at three different banks, and and m the most recent one, Deutsche Bank. I ran a group called the Yankee Origination Group. So it was basically bringing non-U.S. corporations, financial institutions, and sovereign entities into the U.S. market to fund. And through that, I because I worked for European banks doing this in the U.S. markets, there was a big entrepreneurial component to it as we were competing with the Goldman's and at that time the Solomon brothers and the Merrill Lynch's and Morgan Stanley's and the, the big so-called bulge bracket investment banks. And so I always kind of had that spirit of entrepreneurship, even though I was working at, uh, at large banks, but I was doing it in small groups that were growing and competing really, uh, really heavily. So I had that in me and I loved banking. I loved the, the work in representing different companies, understanding them, getting under the hood, understanding and meeting management and talking with them and then advising them and helping to construct different securities that we could sell in the, in the U.S. markets. Uh, but as the technology boom was happening uh, and we got close to the, the bubble, uh, it was very enticing. The idea of of leaving banking and getting into entrepreneurship outside of the comfort of a larger organization was sort of a siren call that I was really excited about. And while I would love to, particularly the way you just kindly phrased that question, I would love to look back and say, well, I when the when the crash happened, the bubble burst, I saw this great opportunity and I jumped at it. In fact, I left Deutsche Bank, I resigned about two weeks before the bubble burst, and I started my first company uh, right in the midst of it. And that was a really interesting learning experience. <laughs> but uh, I, I can't look back and say that I was particularly prescient about uh, coming in at the low. I came in at the high and two weeks later it exploded. Uh, but uh, I'm very happy that I did and was happy I did then, but uh, but it was interesting timing. Yeah, I, I looked at that and also thought it's interesting, but it's 
I'm now it's even more interesting, right? Because it, it actually is exactly the other way than I thought. Anyway, great story. So you have been a CEO for many companies in that time, right? Try to really get a footing in the technology space. At one point, you you then decided to co-found uh, Howland Partners, and later, which later on became Howland Securities, and you provided advisory to banking institution and technology companies. So taking the learnings of both fields you have worked before and putting them together. So as a lot of startups are also listening to the podcast and one of your advisories was capital raising, given your experience, what are the top three things to consider when you're looking for capital as an aspiring CEO? Well, I, I think for any company that's that's raising capital, whether it's early stage or later stage, you have to start by having either pulled together a high quality team. The team is absolutely essential. And if you're at that such an early stage where it's really a person or two people, you need to be able to demonstrate the plan to source, recruit, retain and grow really good people because the the uh, the cliche that that uh, that companies uh, get invested in because of the technology is not always right it's really the people and the people who are controlling or building the technology so the people is incredible are incredibly important i also think the ability to talk about the pros and cons or the strengths and weaknesses or the opportunities and the challenges, but to be able to talk about the balance of uh, challenges that uh, that you're going to have is really important. A circumspect and well thought through um, communication is critical. And most investors, whether they're angel investors at the early stage or they're larger institutional investors, they don't want to just hear this incredible vision. They want to hear the vision with the backup of what could go wrong and how it's been thought through. The third thing is uh, is really about telling the story. And uh, I've got a very close friend a uh, gentleman named Adam Epstein, who uh, is a longtime investor and author on corporate governance and uh, is an advisor to companies. And he really pushes, uh, and very rightly so, has been an early uh, proponent of the story. So many companies, so many management teams come out and uh, have and talk about the thing that they've built without being able to tell a cohesive story and a coherent story to investors. And that doesn't mean making things up. On the contrary, it means giving something that really makes sense. So I think you've got to have good people. You've got to be able to talk about the, the pros and cons and that you've thought them through. And you've got to be able to communicate well and uh, in a in an honest, a true, a genuine, and a thorough way. Like this conversation, honest, true, genuine, and thorough. So, <laughs> And that's why we move on, because that, thank you so much. That was great to the next part, which is you now are in Howland Securities. You have actually acquired a broker to build that company. But then one year later, after you already were doing a big merger, you started acquiring another company and then even being the CEO of that with rapid ratings. So 
why did you take that upon yourself? It must be passion, right? You saw something that really perfectly connected and you thought, okay, let's go for it. That's basically right. Uh, Howland Partners and Howland Securities were and, and, and ultimately was an entity to help advise companies and to, and to raise capital. And, and our focus was really on the what's now considered fintech and then had an element that was independent research as well as technology and, and financial services. And so that was our focus. So the clients that we were representing there were kind of all in that world. And it's also really important that when I say we, I explain that uh, I've had a partner, uh, Douglas Cameron, for now 24 years, and everything that I've done since banking, we've done together. And it's one of the great, it's one of the great uh, aspects of my personal and professional history that I've been able to uh, work so closely with someone I, uh, who has become a wonderful friend, uh, but also someone I respect immensely professionally. And so, uh, when we were focused on uh, Howland, uh, Rapid Ratings came along and it was the kind of company we would have represented. And in fact, we were approached to look for a buyer of the company. So the owners at the time were looking for a sell side M&A banker and approached us because they had heard that we had a specialty in the space. And as we looked at it, we kind of had that light bulb that went, well, we're dumb enough to do this. So why don't we uh why don't we try this because the as we got to know the company better we thought that the diamond might have been a little bit rougher than we thought but it was bigger than we thought and the idea of getting into the rating space with an with a non-issuer paid so not like s p and moody's but a subscriber paid a user paid model uh that was really interesting and that rapid ratings was a quantitative system for evaluating financial risk we thought was extremely valuable and useful in a whole bunch of ways. It ultimately really paid off, particularly in supply chain. But we thought this would be something that we should uh, that we should buy ourselves. And so we did. And uh, we really kind of ran the two of them simultaneously for about a year as we wound down and completed the deals that were in the investment banking boutique because we really wanted to focus exclusively on rapid ratings. And, and that's really ultimately what we ended up doing. Perfect segue when it comes to supply chain, because you already mentioned it. My next question is around that. So you obviously, with your banking background, a little bit um, dabbling in the fintech space um, and technology you probably didn't have too many touch, touch points with supply chain before. And all of a sudden, there was a big customer group of yours, right? So how did you start thinking about supply chain when you first heard about this? And how did your, I would say, conception of what a supply chain is change over time? Originally, I thought rapid ratings would be about 75% financial services clients and 25% corporate clients using us for counterparty risk management. And by counterparty risk management, I mean looking at customers and clients on one side, traditional sort of credit and finance work, and on the other side, suppliers. So it, it stood to reason 
particularly after the financial crisis, which was right around the time, just to just to continue my major career changes being aligned with major crises, uh, I uh, you know we bought rapid ratings and then immediately went into the financial crisis. The it, it it was clear that companies were going to need to understand the businesses that they worked with better than they ever have before. So that seemed obvious, though in supply chain, supply chain was still risk in supply chain was still a relatively young sub-discipline within supply chain. And of course, things like compliance and uh and uh, quality and delivery and all of the the traditional logistics aspects of supply chain have been around for a long time but financial risk in supply chain tended to still be uh, something that people would just look at payment scores and say all right well the, the suppliers paid their bills so they must be fine which and and that's that's an inadequate ultimately it's an inadequate uh, element or way to evaluate uh, a supplier so we thought there was a different way to do it and uh, supporting us in this was that supply chain risk became a big area and it became a big area really for the last 10 years, 12 years, something like that. And it has grown and it's grown and it's grown. And as more technology has come in to help supply chain, as more risk domains have been in focus by boards and therefore uh, finance organizations and therefore budget and therefore procurement and supply chain, things like cybersecurity risk, more recently ESG um, and and certainly financial uh, is something that has just become more and more important. We had the idea and, and it's fully been vetted out that financial risk is an underpinning one to all of these others. And if a supplier is weakening from a financial health perspective, they can't be good at all of these other things. And if they're stronger and improving in financial health, they have the ability to be stronger in all of these other areas. So that was just something that we thought made a lot of sense. And uh, and it is really borne out beautifully. Hmm. Yeah. And did you, did you find any surprises when you looked at uh, when you started talking to the supply chain professionals, were there any surprises when it comes to the complexity you saw in supply chains or how their work actually went on a daily basis in, in what you would have perceived from the outside? Yeah, I, I think the biggest surprise has been that there is a real range in sophistication of supply chain risk organizations, or put another way, the elements of supply chain risk are really quite different in different organizations. Some are real sophisticated. Some are on their path to becoming more sophisticated. And some are kind of living in a world where they think, well, we haven't had a lot of problems, so we're probably doing it well, which is frankly unsophisticated and uh, it and it works until it doesn't when it doesn't it's a giant blow up people lose jobs uh, it can be a it can be a disaster but the where a company is on that spectrum is not uh, at all connected to what their external perceived sophistication as an organization is I can put it another way by saying you can take the fortune thousand and you could say well the top 500 must be the most sophisticated. And it's just not that way. Uh, many of them 
are very sophisticated. Many of them have become much more sophisticated, but the size of the organization and its status as a public company doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be. And that's been something that we've that we've needed to learn uh, over time. One of the most fascinating parts to me of, of supply chain risk for the financial side is under, is finding out that across all companies, really all sizes, about 75% of their suppliers are private companies. And when private companies are the ones that historically have not disclosed very much, particularly financial information, it means that three quarters of most companies' supply chains historically have been this giant black hole where they just don't know how well those suppliers are doing, yet many of them are critical suppliers. So that's an area we've really tried to focus on, and uh, and it's become one of the central elements of, of value that Rapid Ratings provides. But all of that's been really interesting, and I've, and I've learned it along the way. So looking at Rapid Ratings, you alluded to the financial crisis, but were there other pivotal moments that really changed rapid rating as a company, either from a growth perspective or from a focus perspective? This focus on private company ratings has been the the most the most uh, is the seminal moment in our in our history. We always knew that the algorithms could rate public and private companies on the same basis, but that presupposed you had the private company financials. And I remember it's got to be close to 12 years ago now when uh, we got a call and this is this has been discussed publicly, so I can I can say it. But we got a call from someone at GE, at GE, uh, GE uh, corporate at the time. And uh, and th this gentleman called and said, we need across all of the business units to evaluate our private company suppliers better. But we can't staff up to uh, to try to chase down and ask each one of the private companies to supply their financials and it's hard and so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, what can you do about that? And uh, and they had heard about us from, I think it was Gartner. And so they they heard and, and, and it was an inbound call. And basically at that moment, I said, we'll go out and get them for you. And so, you know, 130,000 some odd private ratings from 140 countries later, uh, we began soliciting private company financials through our system, which is a combination of technology and people on behalf of our clients to get confidentially the information that is needed to do the financial health evaluations. And that was something that started as an inbound call. And I went, yeah, I think we should do that for you, for GE. And uh, and that has been one of the real central value propositions of the company ever since. So uh, that was the biggest. The, the other is that we were fortunate to find some uh, some wonderful uh, financial backers along the way, and uh, and they helped us to expand the company. And uh, again, it's about people. So with that expansion, we were able to continue to add really good people and and grow the business. Looking at at suppliers providing, and then also looking for their financial information, I I do believe that when you think about it, it makes sense that you need to get the data right. But then the process of really getting data and having suppliers share additional information with you, right? Um, even if you come on behalf of a customer, that wasn't standard practice at that time. So 
it essentially was evangelizing uh, to them what you're trying to do for your customers. Uh, what what was that experience like? Because I can believe that can be pretty tough. I'll tell you the the best the best example of or illustration of the fact that it is tough is that no one else has done it successfully other than us. And so you know we've created this this moat. Um, that has given us this protection as a business as we grow, because it is really hard to do. But we capitalized on something really important, and that is the theme of collaboration. And it sounds light and fluffy for a company that is about quantitative analysis and a technology company, but it's true that that helping to facilitate the collaboration between clients and their critical suppliers and being able to demonstrate to those suppliers that there is an advantage in, in a commercial value to the disclosure, as long as it's kept confidential and it's protected. And we've spent a lot of money and a lot of time and thought into making sure that that happens. But they're knowing that the disclosure is part of building the strong relationship with their client, their customer that they want, and helping our large uh, enterprise clients realize that you can't take this financial information and the analysis of a supplier and use it against them. Right? That that is a quick way to not get <laughs> to, to to not progress a program. But if you're using it as a means to communicate with them and as part of the evaluation process it can be a really powerful relationship builder. And that's something that uh, took time and and you use the right word. We had to, we still have to evangelize that. I mean, it is about proselytizing and communicating and providing thought leadership and helping to coach uh, everyone about it. But it has become such an interesting central part of the success of rapid ratings. And frankly, um, of, of my professional career. So my development as a as a a person in this space who talks about the opportunities really recognizing that this is an important part of it and speaking to both sides and speaking to the market about it has been both uh, interesting and fascinating. It's also been enriching because it has put me in a position where I feel very fortunate that I've been able to talk to a lot of our clients and their suppliers about the opportunities for doing more business together and, and doing it. Even if a supplier is not doing well financially, the more they're communicating, the better off it is for them. Uh, and that's a, I can, I can speak to them as a private company owner and as an, as an entrepreneur. And, uh, and I think that helps. You have worked when it comes to debt or also financing already in that space. And we have seen many companies actually with very successful turnaround strategies after even a bankruptcy, right? So it's not the end having no money for the moment. If you have a strong product, might be that you always can achieve a return essentially. In in and back to back to one of your early questions, you know, a a supplier that is not doing well, if they can communicate a cogent story and explain what they're doing in the business and the and be be honest about the 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 pros and the cons of what's going on they're the ones that are going to survive the best and are going to capitalize on having good clients who want to understand them better right so it's it really is about you know pulling the pieces together and being able to communicate the story 
but for most of the uh, the Fortune thousand type uh, type enterprises, they don't have the ability to speak to five thousand suppliers or even in many cases five hundred suppliers to understand their story as well. Which is where rapid ratings has come in to be able to bridge that gap really well. It just came back to me was a story about a German company that helps with producing paper. So essentially, they build these big, giant steel presses that help mm -hmm. make the paper, so the round presses. And they're market leader in their space. But because of some, some issues, they, they went out of liquidity and they had to close down the plant. And then on the last day, the employees all went to the same bar everybody was going to after work anyway. And they were contemplating there with the barkeeper around their work, what they did there every day and how sad it is that it's gone. And then the barkeeper took that information, put it into a cohesive story and found, an, found a consulting company that then helped them find, a, find an investor. And it all was based on this guy talking to the people in the bar about what they did on a daily basis, how valuable it is, right? Yeah, and the I management- love that. The management was not able to find somebody, but because of the good storytelling, all of a sudden they found an investor. Yeah. Uh, I love that story. Uh, all, all aspects of it, not the least of which is that it can be really productive to go to the bar. Yeah. I mean, it's about exchanging ideas, right? And sometimes you take information from various places and all of a sudden it just clicks, right? Yeah. And I, and I think that's even more important in an environment like the one we're in today, where there are so many factors that have been affecting companies positively, but many negatively. The COVID crisis, the the this sort of more post-COVID crisis period, uh, supply chain disruptions, and certainly uh, global uh, geopolitical risks and disruptions. All of these things are affecting companies more than maybe ever before, but certainly uh, the more global supply chains are, the more companies are exposed to all of these problems, and it is the communication about them that is absolutely critical. So uh, I agree; it's it's an interesting and necessary time for that kind of that kind of communication to be a part of supply chain risk management. Yes. Talking about interesting times, we are in an economic downturn and financial health, obviously, in situations like that is becoming a really important topic. So what are like key areas or even key regions that you see already as a major concern or might see as a major concern coming up in the future? And um, will a big bankruptcy wave actually come? So I, I think less in terms of the geographic mm -hmm. uh, challenges or the industry challenges as I do the segment of companies. And when I think about the larger companies versus the smaller companies, or often it's public versus private, that's where I think we've got the biggest challenge over the next couple of years and where we are likely to see the most disruption. So many public companies have continued to have access to capital through this contracting and turbulent credit market that we've been in, uh, where private companies and smaller companies 
um, have had a harder time. And the reason, there are a couple of reasons for that. So really quickly, you know, we've had a low interest rate environment for uh, for now well over a decade. And that was first the quantitative easing as a result of the financial crisis. And then it was the government stimulus funding and support with the COVID crisis. But it, it has created what is essentially a 14 to 15 year period of extremely low interest rates where investors have had to go down and invest in weaker and weaker companies to get yield that they historically would have liked. So that has supported weaker companies. And there have been more investors in credit. Uh, so you've had more credit availability for more types of companies. And you've had banks that have had uh, a, a period of relative boom. So they've been able to continue to invest in or lend to private companies and middle market, uh, smaller companies. The challenge to all of that is that it has meant companies have sustained themselves for a long time on this ability to constantly raise money at very cheap levels. With a contraction in credit, with higher interest rates, combined with inflation that has hit particularly the middle-sized companies and the smaller companies harder than the larger companies because their costs of capital, of course, are higher, but their costs of labor, their costs of parts, have gotten higher and they haven't been able to pass all of those through. So what you've seen in this economic boom, if if looked at by the stock market, for instance, because everyone says that things are great because the stock market's doing well, the what you actually see are larger companies have been able to survive and, and thrive, whereas the middle market and the smaller companies and private companies have been squeezed a lot more. That has created a period where many of those companies won't survive. And some of them will just fail. Some of them will have to be restructured. Some of them will have to sell themselves. So there'll be more M&A, more private equity investment and so forth. But all of that creates sort of under the surface a, uh, a, a different environment than people have seen before. And, and we've heard it recently being referred to as a riptide economy, where there's this undercurrent that is that is pulling um, businesses in a in a bad direction, sort of out to sea, and uh, we uh, we partnered with a uh, a fund called Marblegate that did a really interesting study uh, looking at look, using our data with us to look at middle market companies and the disparity between middle market companies and larger companies is radical, significant decline in uh, in operating and net profitability, significant decline in liquidity, big increase in leverage. And you look at all of those things compared to the public companies. That's where people need to focus, and uh, and then you add the geographic risk that uh, that comes from uh, from multiple massive hotspots around the world and supply chain disruption that are tied to tied to those. Uh, it's a it's going to be a period for the next couple of years where we will see more bankruptcies, but we're going to see it for a variety of reasons. The amount of debt companies have being one, and uh, and and this phenomenon being another. So do you think that people monitoring the space are actually well prepared? Because frankly, a lot have probably never been in a situation like this here. Yeah, no, that's a it's it's a good it's a good point because I, I think a lot of companies have gotten better. They've gotten smarter, they've put in technology, they've, you know, they they have adapted their processes to use financial health evaluations or and or to use you know, other technologies available to them so they can scalably monitor more risk. But you still have a phenomenon that a lot of 
the people in these companies have come into their roles in the last 10 years or looked at another way, they weren't in their roles in the last credit downturn and during and post the financial crisis or in any uh, end of a credit cycle. So there are a lot of people trying to manage risks who have never had to manage the, the risks that we have today. And that means they have to be more clever. They have to be more curious. They have to adapt and uh, and use technology and rely on thought leadership of, of third parties like, like rapid ratings and others. To, uh, to assist them. So it's an interesting time going back to the fact that 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of risk management in supply chain. This is an opportunity for supply chain risk management to go through a whole nother growth period and, uh, and evolve, which is going to be exciting to watch. Yeah. Maturity is going to happen, right? If they want to or not, because they're <laughs> going to have to manage a crisis every now and that's then. It, now. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It, 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 baptism by fire. Exactly. Very good. So we now have gone through your whole career from the very beginnings to today. Um, now you're the executive chair of Rapid Rating. We have understood how you got there. And frankly, looking at it, it just looks like a logical evolution step by step. But has it felt this way all the time? No. <laughs> uh, it, it's it, I, I love looking back now and, and I appreciate your helping me look back and, and think that there was this really logical through line from the beginning till uh, till now. The 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 reality is that we don't most people don't get that opportunity to just do this, you know, long term, many decades sort of plotting out and, and, and have it be a straight line. Uh, and that's fine. That's 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 fun. Uh, there are themes in what I've done, and there are themes in the businesses that I've been involved with that uh, that are that are exciting, uh, but it hasn't been perfectly plotted out from the beginning. That said, some of the most consistent pieces are that you know, I've enjoyed entrepreneurship. I've enjoyed building businesses. I have had wonderful business and personal partners that have been you know central to, my being able to succeed and our being able to succeed. And, uh, and I hope that, you know, wh whatever the, whatever the next chapters are, uh, I'm sure we'll continue to have those themes because they're just makes everything more fun. Do you also think your, your having this partnership gave you overall more confidence to take more risks than you would have done otherwise? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, 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 I think it must, um, you know my uh, my longtime business partners and and uh, and colleagues and and most specifically Douglas uh, has always been a wonderful ballast and uh, and in many ways more conservative than I am. But then in certain things I've been the more conservative one. But I think being a good entrepreneur, you've got to be you've got to be able to take incredible risks in as conservative a way as possible. Um, because particularly in the industries that I've been in, uh, because there's some balance there. And I'm sure there are things that I've been too conservative about, or I could have taken more risks and they're probably risks I maybe shouldn't have taken. I don't know, but, uh, you know, you never really know those things. You just try to make the best decisions possible at the time with the information you've got. And certainly having a trusted partner has helped me to do that a lot. My last question 
always is around hobbies or other things that kind of stand out. So today I want to talk with you about the young audiences uh, arts for learning, which is where you are a national board member and they are looking to advance artistic and educational development for children and youth by bringing together professional artists of all disciplines to learn and create and participate in arts. My, my simple question here is, because that sounds like an amazing cause, why is giving children access to art so important to you? So I've been involved in this organization now for pretty uh, close to 20 years, and it's it's the oldest arts in education nonprofit in, in the U.S. Uh, and it has gone through a variety. It, it's evolved a lot over time. There are 30 affiliates around the country. Uh, so we are providing uh, services and, uh, and, and these educational elements to uh, kids around 5 million, uh, in some cases, 6 million or some years, 6 million kids um, a year. But the gist of it is, to use the arts as a way to help kids learn other things. It's not just about letting them learn how to play an instrument. It's about helping them to understand problem solving differently and to reinforce their reading comprehension and their math skills and science. And, and it's uh, that's why we call it arts in education as opposed to education of arts. But ultimately, it's about giving kids the ability to think broadly and to become critical thinkers and to have more empathy and to be exposed to things outside of uh, the traditional day in day out school stuff. As an entrepreneur, as uh, as a, a business person, uh, as someone who has has enjoyed the path that I have enjoyed. I think those are really critical elements that every kid should have. And that if we can do something to help the next generation be better thinkers and uh, and carry more empathy with them as they uh, as they grow in their lives, that's about as wonderful a, that's about as wonderful a goal as we can have. And it will help many of them be entrepreneurs. It'll help many of them just succeed in anything they want to do by having uh, a broader, more rounded education. So uh, I love it. And uh, it's wonderful, wonderful people, wonderful goal. And it ties into a lot of the things that I've done professionally. And it shows again, it makes sense to ask these questions at the end, because I couldn't follow this up anymore. It's just a great cause and a great ending to the episode. And with that, James, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, it's been a wonderful time and I really appreciate it. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. And with that, everybody, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please follow James on LinkedIn where um, you don't share so often, but what you do is quite in-depth. So I would definitely recommend to give him a follow. And with that, I would like to say bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again. This was Supply Chain Pioneers. Thanks for watching, listening, or however you are enjoying this podcast. You can find Supply Chain Pioneers on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all other major podcast players, as well as on YouTube at Ulf Talk Supply Chain. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment. See you next time.